Good morning, Connect. It's like it's old home week or something. There's so much talking going on. It's awesome. That's what we should experience at church, isn't it? We should come to church and have a great time, be connected with people, learn from God's word, have an awesome time of worship. And Vanessa, where's Vanessa? Is there a better MC than Vanessa? <laughs> she always has awesome things to say, doesn't she? I love when Vanessa is the MC. I'm Pastor Mark. I'm a member of the pastoral team. I'll be speaking to you this morning. Pastor Derek, our lead pastor and his family, good for them. They are on vacation getting some R&R. What a great thing it is to go on vacation, huh? I, I wish I was on vacation, I'll tell you. It's, it's so important to get recharged for all of us. When we go on vacation, when we get recharged, take some time away, then we're more productive. We're more able to do the things that God God calls us to do. So I'm glad for them they're on vacation, and I'm sorry for the rest of you that you just get stuck with me. No, just, uh, just, but I'm psyched to be all of you, have you all here this morning. If you're watching online on our video audience, we're great to have you here as well. You know, the neat thing is, is God is outside of time, right? Because God created time, so he's outside of time. So it doesn't matter when a message is heard by somebody, God still works through that message to impact lives, which is really amazing. How many of you are watching the Olympics? You know, by the way, I love the second service. You guys are always revved up. It's a good thing. I love watching the Olympics. You know why I love watching the Olympics? It's people using the human body at this maximum physical capabilities. I'm astonished some of the things I see people do. I think my favorite event is women's floor exercise and gymnastics. How do those little girls do like two flips in the air? They, they get so much air, don't they? It's incredible. Did any of you see the guy from, I think it was Kazakhstan. He won the clean and jerk by setting a world record. See him? Yeah. I, I know some of you guys, big guys do clean and jerk. I think I would probably break a knee trying it. But this guy sets his world record and he finally drops the bar having done it. And he is jumping around like a little kid, which is so awesome because he realized how awesome it was. And because of that big lift, he won the gold medal. But he's just showing this exuberance, these years of training, coming together for something great. I just, I love, the, the, the other thing I love about the Olympics, favorite event, some of these short distance sprints, the 50 or the 100, the beauty of those bodies, I always think, I wish I could get my body to do that. <laughs> they are, they're incredible, aren't they? Well, in the 2012 Olympics, which were in London, there was an American teenage girl by the name of Missy Franklin, 17 years old. She was in high school, she was a high school senior, and she, was a gold medal, medal winner. She won four golds and one other medal. And it was thought at the time that she was going to be the new face of sort of American Olympic swimming. She had just come out of nowhere. She was incredible. She was beautiful, friendly, chatty, smiley. The whole, she had the whole package. And so that was four years ago in London. She appeared in Rio this year seemingly barely. If you're watching, you think, where's Missy Franklin? Don't they remember this girl from a few years ago? Well, she essentially hasn't been around. And after a, a, a poor swim that she had on Thursday night at, here at the Rio game, she said the following, I wish I had an excuse, but I don't. I felt more short than I ever have before, and I wish so much that there was an explanation for that. But I'm just trusting that God has a plan and a purpose, and he's going to make something beautiful out of this. Even though I really ask him right, wish I could ask him right now what that's going to be. So what is it that happened to Missy Franklin in those intervening four years? We know what all Olympians do, don't they? Sure, there's the spotlight, two weeks, and then there are the four years of, or more 
of incredible uh, um, uh, determination. Time in the weight room, time in the pool, in yoga, in stretching sessions, watching their nutrition. They go and go and go so they can bring their body to its maximum potential. But, and, and what we see, that whole time they're doing it, they're sort of in the middle, right, between a game here and four years later another game here, and that's where all the hard work is taking place. For, all, for a lot of us in life, there are times when we're in that in-between zone, that middle zone that's nobody's seeing, right? Th think about it this way. I love hiking. And there are two times when I think the hike is especially great. The first time is when I'm in the parking lot, putting on the pack. I'm full of energy. I've just had the power bar, this and that. The adrenaline's going a little bit. And so I'm there. I'm in the parking lot, full of it. And then the other great time is when I reach the summit. I come out on top, it's a bald top, you can see forever, and it's just so, I'm so exuberant when I get there, I'm there. But there's this big piece of time in the middle. It's where all the hard work takes place. It's where the grunt work takes place. It's where I face the biggest difficulties. The mosquitoes are the worst. My muscles are tired. My t-shirt is soaked with the pack on my back. My, uh, my legs are, feel like they're gonna give out. That's where all the hard stuff takes place. And sometimes we wonder, uh, how long is that in-between time going to be? I started there. I know I'm going somewhere over there, but I don't know how long it's going to be, but I'm going to labor here in the middle. A lot of life can seem like that for us at times, can't it? You ever feel like you're in the middle in this in-between time, yeah? Well, here's the key point for today we need to remember, is that God is always with us. He's always, always with us, even if we're in that in-between time. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at God's word because God is equipped to teach us how we should think and how we should act when we are in, the, in that in-between time. And he's going to do that for us through the life of King David. A little quick background for you. So these words, I'm, I'm about to read a passage for you, okay? And this is about a guy David, who will become king. He's not king yet. He was a nobody for a period of time. He gets anointed, told that he is going to become the king. He kills Goliath, the giant. He becomes one of Saul's greatest generals, has tremendous success in the battlefield. And then Saul gets jealous, and he tries to kill David. And so David runs from Saul. And so the passage I'm going to read is during this in-between time when Saul, when Saul is chasing after David, David is hiding from him, and David must be thinking, what on earth is going on? So let's stand, and I'm going to read God's word to you, okay? Come on, it's the Olympics, right? Anybody have any energy here? Come on, let's stand. I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 23. This is in the Old Testament. Saul was told that David had gone to Kalea, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned him in a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces to go to battle, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now, when David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, Lord, which is a prayer shawl, David, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has definitely heard that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. 
And again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Thanks be to God's word. Let's sit on down. You know, when we pull a passage out of the Bible like this, I think it's really helpful to know, well, where's it from? What's going on? What's the backstory? Uh, I need to put it in some context if it's going to make full sense for me. So let me give you a couple pieces. First of all, if you're not especially familiar with the Bible, this is from the book of 1 Samuel. It's from one of the main sections, the Old Testament. We've got the Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament, life of Jesus and beyond. Old Testament before Jesus. And the Old Testament has really sort of three sections. There's an historical section which has this sort of book telling about the creation of the world and the, the world of the Israelites and time before the Israelites and them founding this nation. We have the, they have the poetry or wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, where God uses different sorts of language and metaphors to help us understand about his character and teach us things. And then we have the prophets. The prophets were men that God spoke to to pass on words of God to people. And the prophets' messages were usually a bummer. Because usually, and the prophets, nobody liked being a prophet because they're always carrying bad news and oftentimes that, those messages were not met with enthusiasm by the listeners. Typically those messages were God saying, I'm unhappy with you. You've fallen away from you. You're not following me. Unless you repent and turn back to me, I'm going to allow your enemies to get you. Those, the gist of what the prophets oftentimes are saying. So here we have David. Um, and so we're, we're, what's the setting of this story? The Israelites... God's chosen people, they're in the promised land. They've come into this, the land of milk and honey. And for a while, they were ruled or overseen by some judges. The people who just uh, gave them wise adjudication, not a king, because their king was God. But the people started griping and complaining to God. And they said, God, we want to be like all the nations around us. We want our own king. Didn't please God, but eventually God relented and allowed them to have a king. And God provided them a king, a guy named Saul. Saul was tall, broad, handsome. And at one level, he was a great king for a period of time, but then his pride started getting in the way, and he started making God unhappy with how he was acting. So eventually, and Saul, was, Saul served as king for 42 years. But partway during Saul's reign, God said, I'm tired of Saul because he is prideful and boastful and, is not, and has been disobedient to me in a variety of very specific ways, which you can read about in Scripture. So God says, I'm going to show you who the new king will be. And he sends one of his prophets, Samuel, to anoint, to identify the next king. And that king is a little shepherd boy, maybe 12, 15 years old, named David. And in the presence of a bunch of people, Saul, uh, uh, um, Samuel, the prophet, anoints David. Doesn't mean he becomes king right then, just anoints him that you will become the king. Shortly after that, what happens to David? He, he, king, he kills Goliath with his sling and a couple of stones and then chops his head off. The Israelites win this big battle, and David rises in his, uh, his strength and power and becomes Saul's best general. And David goes on to lead all sorts of campaigns, and he is incredibly successful 
as a general, but that makes Paul, uh, Saul unhappy. Saul doesn't like the fact that David's getting all this attention and Saul decides he's going to have to kill David. So thus begins an extended story of Saul chasing David around the different places to try to kill him. David, who is a man after God's own heart, scripture tells us, he's not going to defend himself by killing Saul because he sees Saul as God's anointed. He's the king. He was placed there by God. David's not going to touch him. So David will simply run away from him until God takes care of it. And we, so we see this happening. This is where it brings us to the story. David's running away. He's in yet another one of these times where he's running away from Saul while Saul is trying to kill him. So now let's pause for a second and think about this trajectory that David's life has taken, okay? He goes from being a nobody, little shepherd kid, to being told he's going to be the next king. He becomes the single most important general in Saul's army such that he is described this way in 1 Samuel 21. It reads, isn't he the one, this is David, the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The women of Israel sing about David because he's so great. He has seen incredible success. And now he's living in the wilderness. He's not commanding the army anymore because Saul's chased him off. And so here's what the life of the successful general has become. You ready for this? All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around David, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. He has fallen what seems to be a long, long way. It's this an incredible shift, going from, an, from a nobody to somebody great, and now it comes crashing back down. The message translation or message paraphrase of the Bible describes it this way. He was surrounded by losers and vagrants and misfits of all sorts. Can you imagine being David? He must be saying, what's going on here? So here's what we have for David. One point in time, David was over there when he was anointed as king. Because God fulfills his promises, he knows he's eventually going to be over there as king, right? But now he's here. He's between there and there in this middle area, this uncomfortable middle area. And how is he supposed to think? How is he supposed to act during this time? If you were David, what would you be thinking during this time? What, would you, what are the thoughts that would be running through your head or the questions to God that would you be running, would be running through your head? You might say, God, where are you? God, do you, do you actually see me? Do you see where I am? You said I was going to become the king, and look at this. I'm in the wilderness with a bunch of losers. I thought, you, I thought you called me to be king. If that's the case, God, what am I supposed to do right now? What am I supposed to do? I'm stuck in the middle. What am I supposed to do with my life right now? You ever felt that way in your life? Ever felt like, like, I don't know what to do. So you want to hear a little story from my life? I've been there too. You want to hear a story? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. I don't have to tell the story. It's personal. It's really personal. So I was, uh, I haven't always been a pastor. I was uh, in my late 30s, 40-ish. I felt like God calling me into the ministry. I had a secular career, which I loved. It was great. God called me into the ministry. Um, and eventually, uh, this and that, I became bivocational pastor. I mean, by two two vocations. I was a minister and part-time and part-time uh, something else to pay the bills. So I did it for four years for a small country church in Vermont. It was great. God worked in great ways. Super. 
And, um, but eventually I got to the point, I didn't want to be bivocational anymore. I just wanted, I wanted to be a full-time minister. I wanted to be able to devote more of my thinking to the things of God. Because when I was doing my other work, I had to focus on other stuff. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to be in ministry full-time. And I started praying about this. And through a variety of, uh, of um, things, it became very clear to me that God was saying, okay, you can, it's time for you to become a full-time pastor. And so I looked sort of far and wide looking for what seemed to be the perfect church. And we were living in Vermont. And Vermont is a wonderful place to live. And very distinctly felt called by God to come and pastor a church in Norton, Mass., like an hour away from here. And um, people would ask Julie and I, she says, so why did you guys move from Vermont? And I said, well, you only leave Vermont if God calls you to leave Vermont. And so here we were, we were in Massachusetts, and we came into a church that had had a decade of problems. There had been sort of a revolving door of pastors through there, and, it, and they had, had been a big church that had dwindled down somewhat, a lot of people had left because they had just gotten tired of it. Like, I can't stand it anymore. We're out of here. And they would go to find a different church. And um, eventually this church brought in some expensive consultants for two years to help the church work through their issues because they clearly had them. And they talked about vision and purpose and where they were going and all sorts of stuff. And uh, they did a lot of repenting, a lot of everything, a lot of everything this church did. And they, they were convinced that I was the one for them. I was told uh, sometime later by the, the search team, he said, Mark, we knew from the Holy Spirit that you were the one. We prayed so consistently over all of our applicants. We didn't even interview anybody else. They had a big pool of applicants. Didn't interview anybody else. You were the only one who came in. It was clear it was you. And so with great enthusiasm, my wife and I came down for this position. And um, we did lots of things. We added lots of stuff. There was, there was lots of good stuff going on. But after a year or so, there started being this little murmur on the side, slowly growing murmur from a small group of people. And I found out one of the things they were saying was, Pastor Mark cares too much about the lost. <laughs> well, I'll take that criticism. And there were other people saying, but that's what we wanted, that's what we said we wanted to do. But this murmuring was growing and growing and growing. And some of those people started saying, you know, I know that I said that's what I wanted to do too. I didn't really mean it. I just like our church to be this sort of small church where we know each other. And uh, I was like, whoa. And so I was increasingly discontent then. And this, these, loud vo these voices were getting louder and louder. They were discontent with me. And finally, Julian, I said, this is not going to work for us. Some of these people, they don't want us here. They really don't want us. And this is not what we want. And so we left the church. After being called to this church by God, we were there, right? Now all of a sudden, we didn't know where we were. Five days after that, five days after the left of the church, Julie and I were sitting right in the front row here midweek for an ARC church planters conference. And we were mouths agape. We couldn't believe that there were churches like this because we didn't know. We grew up in New England, we didn't know. It's like, what, there are churches that actually do this? Like for real? And we're, we are planting a church. Boom, we're planting a church. And so we headed down this path. And it seemed like that wasn't where God was calling us. And pretty soon that came to like this halt. And now we didn't know where we were. Now we were in Massachusetts, a place that God had called us. But it seemed, is this God, is this where you called us here in this messy middle? It's like this does not seem like the right thing. 
God, do you know where we are? Do you care about us? Is this the plan you have for us? We cycle through all these questions, and I don't get myself dug into bad places very often, but I had a couple days. I was in a complete fog. I remember I went down to our basement. I didn't tell the, the, the first services, but I went to end of the basement where the, I went to check the oil tank to see how much oil there was and at this house, and there was this low beam that comes across that you always had to be careful about. I was in this complete fog. I checked the oil, and I turned around, and I hit that beam so hard. I don't swear very often. <laughs> I was in a bad place. <laughs> I was surprised that Julie didn't hear me. And I was... And it was why I was in this utter fog. God, what are you doing? And not too, some, some period of time after that, not too quickly, we were here for an SNL service. And a woman came up to me and spoke a prophecy over me, which hasn't happened very often in my life. She said to me, she says, Mark, do you feel like you're in the valley right now? Yeah. She said, God has a word for you. You're in the valley, but there's green grass and high places coming. Now, that's super cool. But you know what she didn't say? And here's when you're going to get there. <laughs> Nothing. Like, and so what? I had the there, God's calling. And I had this thing over there, these words of encouragement. And here I was. I was between there and there. And how do we live when we are between there and there? You've been there. What do we, how do we walk through this time that's uncomfortable and hard? And so, thankfully for us, God is fully aware that we experience this because oftentimes it's what he's anointed for us, what he's, what he's set in place for us, and that God's word fills this out for us. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the attitude that we need to have when we're between there and there and the actions that we're supposed to take. And we cannot take the correct actions if we don't have the right attitude. We don't have the right attitude. We're not going to take the right actions. Trust me. We have to have the right attitude, which is really perspective and thought process, okay? So I'm going to walk you through few different attitude things, and then we're going to look at some actions, okay, and stitch it all together. Sound good? Yes. First thing is, God knows where you are, and he is with you. He knows where you are, and he's with you. We can think to ourselves, God is apathetic, he's angry, he doesn't care about me, he's disowned me. We would be wrong to think that. We can think that we can equate God's silence with his absence, We'd be wrong about that too. God is with us. Just because you don't feel like God's with you doesn't mean that God is not with you. Our feelings can trump reality oftentimes, right? The, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. We can convince ourselves of all sorts of things. And so we can do that. You know, you know that you could, I know you can. You can easily talk yourself into a bad place, can't you? It's like, whoa. It's like, you're like where did that come from? I remember sometimes mowing a lawn. I do my best thing when I'm pushing a lawnmower. Mm, I will never have a lawn care service. I push the lawnmower, I'm thinking, it's like, whoa, Mark, where did those dark thoughts come from? It's like, it's like whoa, 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 I've got to stop those. Just spiral right down, and I'm someplace where it's not the right place to be. We can all do, we can say, God, God doesn't care about me, doesn't do this, doesn't do this. No, 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 no. I'm thinking myself into a bad place. Just the same way we can think ourselves into the proper place. And the best way for us to think ourselves into the proper place is by reading God's word, because he tells us what the truth and reality is, right? So listen to these words here. This is from Psalm 139. First, it tells us God knows where you are. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. There's no maybe, there's no sometimes, there's nothing like that. There are no qualifiers in there. God knows. He knows where you are. And here's the other thing. 
God is with us. Psalm 139 goes and continues talking about this. Is it up on the screen? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And we see it in Joshua in the Old Testament. It says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. When you are between there and there, God is with you. It might not feel like he is, but that's when you have to say, stop feeling that way, Mark. Rest in the truth and reality of God's word because there is a very distinct promise and description that God is with us at all times. So that's the first piece. The second piece is God cares about you. Satan would so love for you to think that God doesn't care about you, especially when you're struggling. He would love to do that because that's a great way to start us down a bad path, right? When I first became a minister in Vermont, out in the country, I did this thing that, that's a, one of the crazy things I do. I put together this little invitation card to the church. You know, you're invited to the old brick church, Pastor Mark, the information, uh, something about God, you know, the church being relevant for today, some great tagline I thought of. And I got on my mountain bike and I put on shorts and a t-shirt and I would just bike, bike through neighborhoods, bike down these dirt roads and go up and knock on people's door. Say, hey, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm the new pastor of the old brick church. Just wanted to let you know who I am, invite you to church. Here's our service times, etc. I had all sorts of interesting conversations with people. There was one farmhouse I came up to. It was a hot, beautiful, beautiful summer evening. Come up onto the, onto the porch. It's got the screen door right here. The, you know, the interior door's open. I can see into the kitchen and the side of the fridge. They're those people that put tons of stickers on the fridge. Like solid stickers on the side of the fridge. But there's a big one right in the middle. You know what it said? Jesus doesn't even like you. Now, when I talked to her, she could not get me off her porch fast enough. But here's what God says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You are a part of that world. God loves you. He cares about you so much that he was willing to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. And you say, why on earth are you dying on the cross for me? Well, because you're not good. I'm not good. Trust us, we're not good in God's sight by God's math. So he had to send his son Jesus down to take the punishment for our sins upon himself so that then, if we accept Jesus as our Savior, then when God looks at us, shockingly, we're perfect. <laughs> that is shocking, right? Because we know ourselves, right? I know me. That's what God does for us. So don't ever think that God doesn't care for you, even when you're in this middle time, because he loves loved you so much that he sent his son, and that doesn't change. That's the second point. Third point is that God always keeps his promises. If you turn to look at your neighbor, you know the person you're looking at doesn't always keep his or her promises. And if you look in the mirror, you know the same about yourself, right? We try to keep our promises, but we don't always keep our promises. Kids are great at making us keep our promises, right? What do they say? But you said... And they always have that wine factor, right? But you said, because they remember everything that we said that has to do with providing them something, right? But you said we would go for ice cream. Now, my Brazilian friends, I don't know if Portuguese has that same wine factor when we, yeah, it's like, oh, but you said. <laughs> now, here's the cool thing. We can go to God and say essentially the same thing. When I do that, I take out the wine factor and I take out the but. I said, God, your word says that you will do this. It says that you are like this. And I'm standing fast in this because, God, you always keep your promises. And here's, here's scripture to back that up. 
from Numbers 23. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he would change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does, does he promise and not fulfill? God keeps promises. Interestingly enough, you know, the Bible's full of promises. Interestingly enough, it's very rare in the Bible when God puts a deadline on his keeping his promise. You ever notice that? It's like, he just promises something. It's like, when? When, God? He's going to fulfill it in his own time. And that brings us to the fourth point, is that God's timing is perfect. Here's my struggle with that. I think that my timing is perfect. <laughs> yeah, a few laughs. I think through things. I got my list. I got my list. I hear God here. The pieces of the line. So Tuesday at 10 o'clock would be perfect, God. God does not abide by my time frame. His time frame is always perfect, isn't it? It's always perfect. And sometimes that time frame stretches out. Right before the Israelites go into the promised land, God pegs Jonathan to lead them in. Joshua 1.6 reads the following. Be strong and courageous because you, jo you, Joshua, will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. It's not like I swore yesterday to give them. It's this long time frame. God made the promise and he fulfills the promise when he's ready. If we look at this backstory for a minute, it's sort of an amazing thing about this fulfillment of that particular promise. Because, you know, 40 years earlier, God was ready for them to all to go into promised land. They cycle around in the desert for a couple of weeks. God's ready to bring him in. He says, you know what? I'm going to send a bunch of spies. Wouldn't you love to be one of those spies? I'm going to spend a dozen spies into the promised land to check it out and come back and tell everybody how great it is. They, they do their thing. I've got some teenagers that would have loved to have been on that mission. They come back and they say, yes, this is, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. The productivity of this land is incredible. But the people there are too strong. We could never beat them. Because the land was populated. We could never defeat them in battle and take over their land. Impossible. All the spies said it. Well, all the spies except for two. Caleb and Joshua said, God's, God's got this. We can do it. There's conflict. They argue about it. No, the people said, no, we're not going to do it. And God says, have it your way. You can stay in the wilderness until you're all dead. And they spend the next 40 years messing around in the wilderness until the whole generation dies. <laughs> Except for what? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua had 40 years in the middle that had nothing to do with him. Can you believe that? During that whole time, God was bringing about things. God ordained time for God's purpose and Joshua is stuck riding out the storm. You know, God, God will sometimes place us in the middle because there's something that he wants to teach us or rebuke us with or show us or mold us or grow us. Other times, it's God and it's doing 50 million things at once. He says, it's not the right time yet. Sorry, Mark, it's not about you. It's not the right time yet. But we know that God in his greatness will mold us and shape us during that time, even though... We are stuck in the holding pattern while God's got some bigger things going on. Isn't that incredible to think about? But so let's be clear about this, though. We see it in, for Joshua. That middle time is very distinctly ordained by God. So if we believe all that, so then here's something really key to listen to then. I believe that a proper attitude about the in-between time leads to proper actions during the in-between time. Got that? 
A proper attitude about the in-between time leads to right actions during the in-between time. David, in the story I read from you, he gives us five actions that we're supposed to do. I'm convinced when I read what David did, I'm convinced that he had the right attitude. He followed through the right way. So here are some quick things that um, David did, okay? First is, for right actions, keep making God your first source of direction. You know, I will always have a plan. I'm always saying to my kids, get more data, get more information. David did the same thing, but he got the information from God. Verses 9 through 12 reads, But David learned of Saul's plan and told Abiathar the priest to bring the ephod and ask the Lord what he should do. Then David prayed, O Lord God of Israel, I've heard Saul's coming, etc., etc., what should I do? Again, David asked, Will the leaders of Keilah betray me and my men to Saul? And the Lord replied, Yes, they will betray you. Now, here's an interesting thing. Researchers tell us that 85% of the things that we worry about never come to pass. 85%. Wow. Perhaps that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. You know, 85% of the stuff we worry about, we shouldn't. It gives us stress and unhappiness and never comes to pass. So it's as though David says, God, is this an 85 or is this a 15? This wor my worry about Saul, 85 or 15. David and God says, it's a 15er. Okay, got it, God. And so here's the next thing David does then that we need to learn is we need to be quick to follow God's direction. God says it's an 85. Here's David's response. So David and his men, about 600 of them now, left Keilah and began roaming the countryside. I love that word so. It carries a sense of immediate action after it, doesn't it? The message translation, I love it, takes that verse and says, so David and his men got out of there. I love that. Uh, you know, but here's this little piece of ex life experience that I'll give you that I've learned the hard way lots of times. When God tells me to do something, it's way easier if I do it then. If I don't do it right away, then I start making excuses or come up with explanations or reasons like, oh, God, I know you said this. I know you said A, but if I do B, then I can do these. And that's really better. Look at this, God. And so that's what I tend to do if I don't obey God immediately. David says, listen, just obey God immediately. Here's the third thing, and that is we need to continue with the last assignment that God has given us until he gives us the next assignment. Stay the course. You know, I know that life can get boring, and we can start thinking, hold on, God had me on the highway. I was fiddling with the radio, and I saw the exit sign go by. I think I was supposed to take that exit. I think I was, so I'm taking the next exit. No, 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 no. Wait for God to tell you to take the exit. You know, if you are trusting and following Jesus robustly in your life, you will not miss the direction when he tells you this is the exit to take. Stay the course. Just stay with him. Here's what David says. David stayed in the wilderness, strongholds, and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Just imagine what might have happened if David hadn't stayed the course. The fourth point, which is so important, is don't go it alone. Verses 16 to 18 reads, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. 
Going it alone is lousy in hard times. We all know it is. It's lousy going alone. Jonathan hung around David and encouraged him. You know, just being there was an encouragement for David. And he says, so he talks a little bit about the future. And I will be your second. Sort of like being David's right-hand man. You know what's cool about encouragement here? Jonathan didn't say anything particularly fancy. It's not like, ooh, ooh, he's got the special word to give David. No, he was just there. He orbited around of his life and said, listen, stick with it. It's okay. I love you. You're my brother. Like, brother, you're my friend. Like, God's going to be with us here. You know? In a church of 900, you can come in and out of here every week for a lot of weeks. Never knowing anybody. And when you get in those hard times, it will be lousy because you won't have anybody, any brothers and sisters in Christ, to help you on the way. I'll tell you, it's so true. And that's why we as a church and tons of churches that think like us in this country care deeply about small groups. You've got to get to know people so that when the, on a personal, first name, deeper basis, so that when the hard times hit or when you've got something exciting to celebrate, you know, you've got people, you got people to talk to. You know, people in my last small group, they come in the door here. I still see them. They spot each other and they go over and talk to them. Why? Because they know them. It's the first people they want to go talk to. I'll give you a little bit of window into the future here. We are so convinced of this here at Connect. We're going to make a push. So it's mid-August, right? We're going to make a super push in the beginning of September for the, for the fall semester of small groups, which will go 10, to, 10 or 11 weeks super big push for you to be a member of a small group. It'll be life-changing for you. Not life-changing like knowing Jesus, but life-changing like I've got friends here who are Christian believers and who can help me out. And there I know there are a lot of you who have actually been trained to be leaders of small groups. This is theological. And maybe you need a kick in the pants to make sure you do lead a group. And if you need that, come and talk to me and I will give you that in a in a life-giving way so that you, because we need plenty of, I mean, we're going to have lots of small groups. So gotta be so God says don't go it alone don't go it alone and that's David did not go it alone Jonathan came by and helped him and here's the last thing when we don't go it alone when somebody comes alongside us or we can do it on our own here's what we do remind yourself of God's prior involvement in your life remind yourself of God's prior involvement in your life for Jonathan it was like a pep talk he comes and said David David listen think back here man I know you're this little shepherd boy right then Samuel the prophet comes along and he anoints you as king. Then you take that stupid sling of yours that I didn't think you'd hit a tin can with and you knock out Goliath so you can go chop off his head with a sword and then you become Saul's biggest general and the beautiful women of Israel sing about you. You got this thing coming here. It's over there. Stay the course, man. Stay the course. That's what Jonathan does for David when he comes along. Other people can do that for us. And we can do it for ourselves. I'll tell you the number of times I have said to myself, hold on, God, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. I'm staying the course with you. I don't know where you're headed. I know your character. Because not only does your word say it, but you have revealed it so abundantly in my life. I'm not going to get off track. I'm going to let the prior things you've done in my life build me up and remind me. So important. And here's, because here's the thing. If we're still sitting here, if we're still here today, and I'm sure that Jonathan said something like this to David, it's because God still has a plan for you. When God's done with you, he takes you home. But if you're here, actually your purpose here is not to watch the Olympics and the Patriots, as fun as it is. That's not your purpose. 
It's a little recreation. Your purpose is to do something much bigger for the kingdom, to touch lives in a really personal way. We all have people that we orbit around. It may be that you are the only Christian believer somebody knows. I remember living in Vermont when I was doing my other career. I had this woman say to me, I didn't know her very well. I was working with her. She was, she was client. She said, Mark, can I ask you some questions? You were the only Christian I know. I thought to myself, you're kidding me. But God places us around people. And we need to pay attention to that. God wants to use you because you're still alive. So be prepared for that. Be prepared to do his work. And even if you feel like you're in the middle, remember, it's a God-ordained time. It's not like it's a worthless time. It's not like I'm like, okay, while I'm here, I just, I'm on the exercise bike doing nothing. No, even in, the, in this time, God has prepared many things for you to do. So here's this. So here's this little summary for David. And it gives a sense of how long this middle time can be. So remember, it says here, David was 30 years old when he became king. If it was 15 years old, roughly when he was anointed and killed Goliath, 30 years old when he became king. When he first became king, he only became king over one of Israel's 12 tribes over Judah. And that was another seven years before the rest of Israel said, we want you to be our king. It says here, in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. That was a long period of time before the fulfillment of this anointing was felt by David. And sometimes we can feel that. But I want you to know, God knows who you are. God is with you. So if you would please get to your feet. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. You may feel like you are in the in-between time, in the meanwhile right now. You're between there and there. It doesn't feel good. You, felt like you're, you feel like you're sort of stuck. God is with you and he knows who you are and there's a purpose and plan and even an anointing on that time. So I'm going to, you, I'm going to pray for you all who may be feeling this. And then I'm also going to pray for those of you and give you an opportunity. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you think, Gosh, Mark, Pastor Mark, 20 things you said today, they seem like nothing I've ever heard before. I've never realized that I could step close to God and he knows who I am if I just forgive Jesus. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that as well. But if everybody would, would close your eyes and bow your heads. Right now, if you feel like you are stuck in one of these in-between times, I just ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you feel like you're stuck in in-between times. Oh, there's a lot of hands. And even if you're not in one of those times right now, I bet you've been there before or you're going to be back there. You can put your hands back down. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody in this room who feels like they are in one of these in-between times right now. Lord, I pray that you would touch their heart in such a mighty and powerful way that they would uh, just feel joy, a joyousness in knowing that you know them, care for them, love them, know exactly what's going on in their lives right now. And Lord, also give them this inescapable nugget of confidence that you also have more planned for them. They're not stuck here forever. It's just where you would have them be right now for a variety of reasons. So Lord, I just pray that they would feel it. just their, their spirits would feel lifted. They would feel lifted by that knowledge and by the, what, the knowledge from your word and the promises that you give and how we see David walk through it. Lord, I pray that you would just touch their hearts in a mighty and powerful way. Please keep your heads down and your eyes closed. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say, I need God in my life and I've never known what to do. I'm going to give you a chance right now to change that. 
If you want Jesus in your life right now, just stick up your hand boldly so I can see it in this lighting. Stick up your hand boldly if you need Jesus in your life. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand and I see your hand. Thank you so much. It is so awesome. What you're saying is, God, I want you in my life. You can put your hands right down right now. And we're all as a church going to pray something. And you make sure that you pray this nice and boldly about asking Jesus in your life, okay? Let's all, church, let's all pray this. Dear Jesus, I know you are God. Living my own way does not fulfill what you have for me. Please forgive my sins and lead my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Amen. Amen.